What's going on, everyone? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. We explore subjects here related to food plus drink plus culture. And as always, with questions or comments, which we love about our show, you can reach me at Brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. If you have been listening to our show, you know that we are focusing regularly on the subject of plant-based lifestyles. More evidence is emerging related to what we consume and the relationship to health, both mental and physical, gut health, brain health, etc. We also see more of the traditional medical community and nutritionists aligning around the concept of cognitive nutrition. That according to an article by founder of the Huffington Post and CEO of Thrive Global, Adriana Huffington, a growing body of science in the field of cognitive nutrition shows that the, quote, food-brain connection is actually one of the most powerful drivers of our overall well-being. What we eat matters, not only for our physical health, but for our cognitive and mental health, affecting our risk of anxiety and depression. The science is clear. We can eat our way to better brain health, end quote. So joining us today is Tracy McWhorter, speaker, public health nutritionist, vegan activist, and author of Ageless Vegan and By Any Greens Necessary as well as the first vegan diet book for black women, as well as the creator of the first free African-American vegan starter guide. She has been a practicing vegan and helping people go vegan for over 30 years. You would not know that would be possible if you <laughs> would see her face, but we'll get back to that. Tracy has a master's degree in public health, nutrition, from New York University, and there is a lot more to know about her and her work. So let's get started with Tracy McCorder. Tracy, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here with you. Oh, such an honor to have you. So we kick things off with our short order questions. So let me ask you, what are you listening to these days? What's on your playlist? Ooh, good question. So on my playlist these days, Anita Baker, Lots of Prince because it was just his birthday and Layla Hathaway, Jill Scott, and always some go-go. Some go-go. Okay. Always. All right. Yeah. I'm with all those choices. I love that old Anita Baker too. You can't miss her music. You can listen to it on an album from beginning to end. Absolutely. And I'm dating myself by mentioning an album, aren't I? <laughs> yeah. We're either dating ourselves or we're dead. So. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? All right. So how about morning? What is your, what's the first thing that you drink in the morning? What's your morning beverage? Ah, a green drink is my, well, water is the first thing that I drink. Water. And usually I'll put a little squirt of fresh lemon juice in there, a squeeze of a lemon. But after that, then it's a green drink. So it's usually going to be some blended greens, probably kale, with some ginger and apple. And if I want to go all out and do a whole smoothie, then I'll add some berries to it, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, maybe a date. And I blend that all up with water. Nice. Tracy, I add lemon to my water too, and I'm not quite sure why. What's the benefit of the lemon? Basically having a lemon with your water just helps to alkalize your bloodstream. That's all. Some say it can be cleansing, but it depends. It can help you eliminate in the morning, but it depends on how much lemon you squeeze. And there are other things that can do that as well. Just having dark leafy greens with water blended up will do that as well. But usually it's just to help restore the proper pH balance in your bloodstream. Oh, good, good, good tip. How about your favorite plant-based sweet treat? Anything chocolate, a brownie, a chocolate chip cookie, chocolate ice cream, anything chocolate. My wife gave me a recipe and I actually made it successfully and I'm not a great baker, but a chocolate cake with avocado. Yes. Yes. That works, Creamy. right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great replacement for egg. Yeah. That's yeah. excellent. Okay. You're based in DC, correct? Yes. Okay. So what is your favorite local plant based restaurant of the moment? Oh, see, Brenda, you're going to give me in trouble. I know. <laughs> I can name a couple. Oh, my goodness. I have some friends who own plates. So 
That's always a tricky one for me. So I will say Planta is a new spot in downtown Bethesda that I absolutely love. It recently opened and I went there a couple of times. There's a new vegan, which does vegan soul food. There's a land of Kush in Baltimore that also does vegan soul food. Great Sage in Clarksville, Maryland is one of our favorites. The Vegetable Garden, which does vegan Chinese food. So many. Wow. you got some great options there. Yeah, we do. We're fortunate. I would say. All right. So what are you reading? What books are on your nightstand? Ooh, that's a good one. So I am finishing up Wayward Lives and Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. They're also actually with some childhood friends of mine. We're about to read Viola Davis's memoir. So that's probably the most recent. Oh, nice. So you have a little book club? Yeah, it's just, we're doing this for the first time. These are friends of mine I've known since elementary and junior high school. We just recently got together and then we get together a couple times a year and we just decided to read a book together. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's jump in. So how are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm doing great. I'm doing well. You can always complain, talk about something that's going wrong, and there's a lot going wrong in the world. But I like to start the day focused and centered meditation and yoga journaling before I talk to anybody, before I open any emails, before I respond to anything. That helps me keep centered. So we're having our conversation early enough where I'm still on that calm. But I'm trying that too. And I have found that it, it does help. It sets a different tone for my day. I was accustomed to grabbing my phone the moment my eyes wake up and grab the newspaper headlines and get all worked up before I even have had coffee. But I've been trying to practice waking up a little calmer and a little easier music and just easing into it. And I've definitely found it such a different tone for the day. Yeah, it makes makes all the difference. Yep, no question. So let me ask you, is there a difference between plant-based and vegan or are those terms interchangeable? Excellent question. Generally speaking, the terms are interchangeable, right? People use them all the time, interchangeably, just different, especially if you're writing something and you want to switch it up. You can use plant-based, plant-strong, plant-centered, vegan. So generally speaking, common conversation, yes, they're interchangeable. Technically speaking, they are different. They can be different. So plant-based typically is just talking about food, right? Whereas vegan is talking about food, but it can also be talking about clothing. It can be talking about skincare. It can be talking about furnishings. It can be talking about the environment. It can be talking about more than food. So anything that involves not using animal products or animal ingredients. So vegan is a broader term. But it can also just be used to talk about food. Also, it gets tricky, but I'm just going to share this. That sometimes food products will say they're plant-based, but it doesn't mean that they're 100% plant. So plant-based does not always mean 100% plants. It can mean that it's mostly plants. So that's getting into the weeds, but it's an excellent question that I don't get asked often. So I just wanted to share that. Typically, if you see the word vegan on a food product, it's 100% no animal products. But if it says plant-based and you're not familiar with that brand as being vegan, then you definitely want to check the ingredients or you want to see if it also says vegan or has that B symbol. Wow, that's fantastic. And I can see the little margin for interpretation on plant-based. That's an excellent point. So then I guess... I don't know if my next question, if I should change the uh, the word out, but I wanted to ask you about the concept of living a plant-based lifestyle as it sounds like it encompasses more than food. I wanted to start with that as a broad question, but maybe I should substitute plant-based for vegan. Just in common language, practically speaking, I think it's fine to use that. Okay. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask, and that's what most people know. So I think that's great. It's like Black and African-American, right? I think it it might be similar to that. And we can use them interchangeably, but Black is also global, whereas African-American is not. Now I forgot your question. It was something about a plant-based lifestyle. Yeah, what I was going to say is, what does it mean to live a Mm plant-based lifestyle? And is there, in fact, more to it than the decisions we make about what we eat? And I think you started to allude to that in talking about the vegan lifestyle. But go ahead, if you would, just elaborate on that. 
Yeah, definitely. So a plant-based lifestyle or a vegan lifestyle is definitely all about food. So it depends on where you enter into this lifestyle. A lot of people, and I would say probably most people, enter it through food because of health reasons. They have a health condition that, they're, that they want to address. They want to lose weight. Maybe they just had a health scare and their health care professional is suggesting vegan food, plant-based foods to maintain so that they don't go back. So usually people enter for health reasons to become healthier or to sustain their health. And if that's the place that most people enter, they then tend to expand or evolve into it as more than food. So then they may start to think about my food doesn't have animal ingredients. What about my skincare? What about my hair care? Because that's going on my body and inside my body as well, not just on top of my skin, but it's absorbing into my skin. So do I want those products to be vegan as well? Do I want them to be more natural? There's also the issue of animal cruelty, right? Although even though products may be vegan, they may not contain animal products. They may be tested on animals. So that's another reason why people might consider having vegan products because, you know, they don't want animal ingredients to be absorbed into their skin, but they also don't want the ingredients to be tested on animals. So there's skin care, there's hair care, and it can also then become cleaning products for their home. They're vegan products, they're plant-based products that are vegan and more natural that can be used. And then there's also makeup. Same thing with skincare. You can talk about makeup. Is your makeup tested on animals? Does your makeup have animal ingredients? For example, a lot of the glitter nail polish, that glitter comes from fish scales. And there's a whole wide area of exploring what else in your life can be vegan, cannot exploit animals, right? And then there's the environmental issue as well. We know that factory farming for food, production of cows, the production of chicken, the production of turkey, pigs, all in factory farms causes devastation to our land, air, and water. It's one of the biggest drivers for air for water pollution, for land degradation, for the loss of land in the rainforest. There's obviously lumber, but primarily it's because it's clearing land for cattle grazing, for factory farming. So there are all of these reasons why you might expand beyond food, not just caring about what goes into your body, but what happens to the planet. One of the things that people may not know about is that most of the food that is grown in the world is fed to animals in factory farming. So if most of that food were in fact fed to people who are hungry, we would be able to eliminate hunger and starvation in the world. So you are not only affecting your own health when you decide to eat all or more plant-based foods, you're also ensuring that there is more food available for hungry people in the world. And particularly for people of color, that's important to consider. So these are all the ways that entering in through food and health can also expand your horizons as it did for me. Sure. Tracy, you mentioned vegan products, skin products, yeah. hair care, makeup, what have you. And uh, you make really good points. Of course, we have to start to address the sustainability of our food system. But when you talk about those products, do you see the same benefits health-wise using vegan skin care, vegan makeups, hair products, and the like? I do. I think it's important not to, I don't know if we can completely eliminate, we can be 100%, but as close as you can get to not putting toxins and chemicals and artificial ingredients and dyes on your skin, in your body. So not just for food, but for the things that you put on your skin and hair, it definitely makes a difference. And then we can be allergic to these things. It can cause rashes. It can cause breakouts. It can cause problems over time and that you might not be aware of immediately. So it all makes a difference, but it's not all or nothing. You do the best that you can. Okay. So before we go further, I'll state that I am not entirely plant-based. I occasionally eat chicken and fish, some dairy and eggs, but I have to say I have definitely become a more conscientious eater, trying to get more veggies on my plate than, than ever before. Am I already in trouble here with you? <laughs> Never. Not at all. Not all right. Good. Let's assume, as I'm sure you come across, that there are quite a few listeners who are apprehensive about giving up the foods that they enjoy. So how do you start that conversation? 
So I usually start the conversation with just talking about the fact that I never thought that I would be vegan. I'm an unlikely vegan and just sharing my own personal story. And I don't know if you want me to share it in brief here, but we grew up as omnivores. We were healthier omnivores because my mother was health conscious. We didn't have cookie jars. We didn't have candy. We didn't have sodas. We didn't have candy bars. We ate out once a week, maybe at McDonald's, but we cooked from scratch. We had total cereal and I hated it. I hated vegetables, like literally hated vegetables. I used to dip the bacon back in the grease can. That's, that was me. And so I never, I had cousins who had all of the Kool-Aid and the Sunkist and the grape sodas and all of the junky food. And I discovered it at their homes. And so that's what I wanted. And when I went to college, I gained 25 pounds my first year. I went to Amherst College and I gained 25 pounds because I was away from home and could eat whatever I wanted. And it wasn't until my sophomore year and our Black Student Union brought Dick Gregory to campus to talk about the state of Black America. He decided to switch it up on us to talk about the plate of Black America and why most of us are unhealthy and why we should become vegetarian and vegan. That is what did it for me. Like that conversation rocked my entire world. So I tell my story. Like I have so much compassion and empathy for omnivores because I was that. And I expected to be that for, my, for the rest of my life. And I feel like Dick Gregory was an intervention in my life. And who knew that this would then become my career? You know what I mean? So there's nothing anyone can say to me that they can't be vegan. They can't do it. It's impossible or they have no desire to do it because I was that person. And so that's what I usually share first is that I share my story. Then I talk to them about what foods they already eat that are vegan. Like they are already halfway there and they don't realize it. If you eat fruit, if you eat vegetables, if you eat beans, if you eat grains, if you eat spices, if you season with dried herbs, if you season with oil or flour, those things are all vegan. So you are already eating vegan food. You just don't think about it that way. So you're halfway there. Excellent. I'm going to come back to the Dick Gregory story. I've read about that and I thought that was really fascinating. I went to UMass at Amherst. Oh, I know that area very well. Yeah. Yeah. We actually had Dick Gregory speak at, at UMass at some point, but oh, wow. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you knowing what's best for us and our health is one thing, exercise more, don't smoke, don't drink in excess, watch the salt, et cetera. But doing that takes commitment. And when you're talking about a cultural shift, that's a big ship to turn, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll give you a, a micro example. In 2012, we opened a restaurant in South LA called Post and Beam. And uh, I'm happy to say the restaurant recently celebrated its 10th anniversary and received a James Beard nomination. Thank you. Under the current owner, our former chef, John Cleveland. But when we opened with a vegetable and herb garden on site and we didn't put salt on the tables and our dishes were composed plates that included portion control side dishes. Most of the restaurants in the neighborhood at that time were traditional soul food places. You meet plus two or three and very ample portions and what have you. And I experienced a lot of pushback from diners initially as we were just trying to broaden the experience and the healthy options for dining in the community, dining out of the community. And I realized that changing people's minds is not easy. It took time. It took patience in delivering that messaging. And ultimately they did embrace us. You're the founder and CEO of 10 million black vegan women, a public health intervention to help 1 million black women go vegan each year for the next 10 years. That's scale. Yeah. <laughs> That's important. <laughs> so what do you find is your biggest challenge in reaching that goal? And where do you get the most resistance? assuming that you do? Where I get the most resistance, the biggest challenge, I think there are two things. First, people don't think that the food will taste good. They just believe that there's no way that it can taste delicious, right? They'd be giving up flavor. They'd be condemning their taste buds to bland food for the rest of their lives. I think the other thing is support, right? They don't have support. We focus primarily on Black women, and so they may be the only ones in their household who want to go vegan and they may be the primary cooks. So they're cooking for their partners, for their children, for their parents, and they don't have support. And it's very hard to cook 
something that you used to eat, you used to eat up until today for the rest of your family. And now you're cooking vegan stuff just for you. So it's the support that's really hard for folks. Those are the two things, taste and support. And so what I tell people with our program, we have a, a 21 day fresh start, right? They get rest, vegan recipes from my Aceless Vegan Cookbook. They get the grocery shopping list done for them. They get a meal plan. So they don't have to think about anything. All they have to do is grocery shop and cook. And then we do it together online. It's very interactive and immersive. So they have a support group of women who are going vegan together. Our first one, we had 12,000 women sign up going vegan online together. And so the support is taken care of, right? They have cooking videos, like they, ha they have everything that they need. We hold their hands through these 21 days. So the taste is taken care of because the dishes are delicious, right? We make sure that there's a wide range of the dishes that are healthy and delicious. I love seasoned food. I wrote this cookbook with my mother. It was a hundred of our favorite vegan recipes from the last 35 years. So it's vegan soul food, but primarily it's any kind of dish, very well seasoned and healthy. And so we take care of taste. All we ask is for folks to try is to get their feet wet. And, and again, I always tell this to people too, a dead bird doesn't taste good. You put oil and flour and seasonings on it. All those things are vegan, right? So you are making something like that taste good because of vegan ingredients. And you can do the same with vegan ingredients, right? A dead bird doesn't <laughs> taste good. <laughs> that might be the name of my next restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. So the New York Times cited your work as a key factor driving the rise in veganism among African-Americans and who happen to also be the fastest growing vegan demographic, which I just, I, I love hearing that. <clears throat> Obviously, Tracy, your work is having an impact, but that can't be the whole story. So why do you think the number of African-Americans is growing at that rate? And what about the population as a whole? What's right. happening? So we, we know there was a 2016 Pew Research Center survey that showed that 8% of African-Americans are vegan and vegetarian as compared to 3% of the overall U.S. population. This is consistent with decades of research that have been, that has been going on since I was, I went vegan 35 years ago that the Vegetarian Resource Group has been doing over the years. Black folks are consistently twice as likely to be vegan than everyone else. So we have a long tradition of being vegan and vegetarian, of being innovators and leaders in the vegan movement. Just look at Seventh-day Adventists, right? From the 1800s, Oakwood University in Alabama, a Black Seventh-day Adventist institution was vegetarian. They started in the 1890s. We've been doing this for centuries. So this isn't anything new. I always say there's this river of Black folks who've been leaders in veganism next to this wider ocean of omnivores, right? So that's 8% of us. So we have this tradition of doing this, but that means that there's 90 plus percent of us that are not, that are eating the standard American diet. So that's the issue that we have to address. But in terms of it being us Black folks having the largest number, being the fastest growing vegan demographic, that's nothing new. It's just been compounding exponentially over time, and it will continue to do that. I think people who were part of Black Liberation Movement, the Civil Rights Movement, Seventh-day Adventists, African Hebrew Israelites, all of these, so there's social justice reasons, there's faith reasons, there's health reasons. There, there are a lot of environmental reasons. We also have a long history of being environmental activists and stewards as African-Americans. And so there are all of these reasons that we entered veganism generations ago and just continue, right? So that is nothing new. It's just going to continue to grow. And so I always stress that we should center ourselves in this movement. We should know this history. And then, of course, back to West and Central Africa, where most of us in this country were brought from during enslavement, the diets there were plant-centered, not plant-exclusive, but plant-centered. And that has carried forth in these 400 years that we've been here. So this isn't anything new. It's just expected to keep growing. But also you have the internet, right? So 
when I first started 35 years ago, I had to go to the library and read everything. There wasn't a lot available, but now it's easy to find out information. You have vegan, black women, vegan influencers in particular everywhere. So it's much easier to find community and find information these days than it was decades ago. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. That uh, connection to history is just, uh, that really resonates. I guess you almost answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So what is the case that you make that has allowed your message to resonate so effectively based on the fast growing number of African-Americans that are becoming plant-based? Does the momentum help make the case easier? I think you answered that, but if you want to take it a little bit further, because I feel the momentum in talking with you and learning about the history and looking and doing a little bit of work research as I looked into you, you get caught up in that. This is a movement that's happening, but clearly there was history that happened way before now. So it's not just this moment. That history is really important. That's how Dick Gregory shared it. That's part of what he talked about when I heard his lecture in 1986. So I do talk about that as well. Context is crucial. My message is one of having grace and compassion with yourself. So I can be very plain and in your face and all of that. I definitely did that in my By Any Degrees Necessary book, my first book. That was some serious, hard, straight talk, girlfriend to girlfriend. This is the deal. And this is why you need to be vegan. But also I use kind of grace and compassion because I was that person. I understand that, as you said, we can have all of this information and we can want to do it. But based on our circumstances, our resources, our communities, it can be difficult to do. And obviously the food industry, the USDA, they do not make it easy. This is a meat and dairy based society. Your healthcare professional probably had no nutrition in school and definitely no plant-based nutrition. That is rare. So you have to take control yourself and it takes a lot to do that. And I always say, have grace and compassion with yourself on this journey. It is usually not overnight. It is usually not in a week. It's usually not in a month. Like our program, has a 21-day intro program, but then we also have a six-week immersion, and then we'll have ongoing coaching, right? There are levels to this. And so you may start, and then you may stop, and you may start, and you may stop. And that might take, it might take you a year, it might take you six years, but keep going. It took me a year and a half of starts and stops from that Dick Gregory lecture to finally go vegetarian and a vegan. That is typically part of the process. So have grace and compassion with yourself. This is not a sprint. It's, it's your personal journey and every vegan meal counts. So I think because, my, because that's the message that I share, that it's doable, that you can do it, you have community, you have support, and it's your personal journey. You take the time that you need. Every meal counts. That's I think that's how I'm able to be effective. And I want to go back inside that uh, that lecture hall for a minute at Amherst College. When reading up a little bit about you, I had to laugh because I ate so many cheeseburgers, Tracy, when I was at you. <laughs> I swear to you, I ate a cheeseburger almost every meal period. And I know that you mentioned that you were a big fan of cheeseburgers. And I'm just curious, when you're sitting in this lecture hall, you're a student, I know I had no, there was no thought in my mind that I needed to change my diet. I needed to live differently. I was an athlete. I thought you could run it out the next day, whatever I did, drinking or eating, what have you. I think that you'd also mentioned that you had some skin issues, maybe yes. some, a little bit of acne. And it's yes. funny when you see people like, Cindy Crawford advertising skin products on television. You're like, you're Cindy Crawford. My skin's never going to look like yours. <laughs> Yet here you are as a student at Amherst and something clearly resonates with you. You make the change. And as I look at you now, you don't need lighting. You don't need makeup. Your <laughs> eyes are bright. Your skin just glows. And it wasn't, yeah. get the impression it wasn't necessarily that way in 1986, but what was it that Dick Gregory said that really made you sit up and say, wait a minute, this, this, there's something to hear. Yeah. So Dick Gregory traced the path of a hamburger, which I ate every day, hamburgers and cheeseburgers from a cow on a factory farm through the slaughterhouse process to a fast food restaurant, to a clogged artery, to a heart attack, like graphically traced that blew my mind because I'd never heard that before. And 
I had vegetarian teachers at seventh grade in school. I went to Sidwell Friends School here in D.C. I just thought they were crazy. Like we had a vegetarian camping trip and I wrote a petition against it because I thought it was fair. This is me. And I respected Dick Gregory. I was a budding activist. I was questioning everything at that time. I had taken the relaxer out of my hair. I was taking all of these classes on imperialism, patriarchy, homophobia, uh, classism, everything. This is 1986. We didn't have the same terms then, but all of that, all of those isms, white supremacy, systemic white supremacy. I was taking classes on those things and it was just expanding my mind and making me question everything. I was learning about them newly or in deeper ways. And so here comes Dick Gregory making all of these connections, connecting all of these dots, the civil rights movement, the Black liberation movement, the USDA and the food industry being about profit, not people, not health, right? African-Americans, why we eat the way we eat, West Africa, Central Africa, enslavement, the Black power movement. Like he's making all of these connections that I've never heard before and talking about himself going vegan because of the civil rights movement. First, he went vegetarian because he extended the practice of nonviolence to compassion for animals, right? In 65. And then in 67, Dr. Alvinia Fulton on the south side of Chicago, who opened the first, she was a naturopathic doctor. She opened the first vegetarian establishment on the south side of Chicago in 1958. She came to him in 67 and said, oh, I think you should go vegan for health reasons, because within that two year period that he had been vegetarian, he was still a self-professed overeater, drinker and smoker. I believe he said he weighed more than 300 pounds. So he was doing it for nonviolence reasons and not for health reasons. She introduced it to him for health reasons, put him on his first fast. So he talked about all of these things and I had never heard food talked about in this way. And I loved food, loved to eat. Like I live to eat. We know that eat to live with Elijah Muhammad or not to eat to live is what he was espousing. But I was the opposite. I was eating to live or overeating. As I said, I gained 25 pounds in one year, nine months, my first year. So all of those reasons, all, you just hit all these points. And I just had never heard food talked about in that way. And it just resonated for me instantly. After that lecture, I remember sitting in that lecture hall with my friends. Lunch was the next period. I was like, what am I going to eat? I really didn't know what to do. So I just stopped eating meat. And I was eating french fries and salads and mashed potatoes. I didn't know what to do. But I just was so moved by his lecture and so grossed out about that hamburger journey that I just stopped eating meat. And that lasted for a week. And I said, Dick Gregory's crazy. Who does this? But then I couldn't get what he said out of my mind. So when I went home to D.C., I went to Martin Luther King Library in the Library of Congress. This is the summer of 86. And I decided to read everything I could on vegetarianism. Again, this is 10 years before we had the Internet. So there was not a lot, but there was some. And my mom and one of my sisters read them too. And by the end of the summer, we all decided to go vegetarian. And then I took my junior year away. I was already going away. I had a semester in Kenya and then a semester in Howard. So in Kenya, I show up as a new vegetarian and they were like, tough. You didn't sign up as a vegetarian, so you got to eat what we got. But I had some up close and personal experiences with animals on safari, traveling around with Samburus for two weeks. I saw them in their own environment and I never had a pet. I'd never really seen animals alive up close. I remember on our last day of safari, they served an animal that looked like a gazelle or an antelope at a restaurant called the Carnivore because you could kill an animal and have it served to you at this restaurant back then. They brought it out intact and they started carving it in front of us. And I was like, that's it. I'm never eating an animal again. So I come home to DC and I go to Howard and I'm walking back and forth from my home to Howard and discover that I'm passing vegan restaurants, soul vegetarian and several others. In fact, DC had 13 vegan establishments in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And they were the only 100% vegan restaurants in the city, in the nation's capital. So there was this large Black vegan community that I just happened to be walking through every day. And I immersed myself in this community and I learned from them more about what Dick Gregory was saying, how and why to be vegetarian, how to make it affordable, delicious, 
all the political, economic, social reasons to do it. My mother and I went to physical classes, cooking classes, and learned from these experts. And so by the time I went back to Amherst my senior year, I was vegetarian, but I couldn't give up cheese. It would take me a whole year after that to give up cheese. That's my journey, but that's why it resonated with me because he put it in context. And I would eventually grow into veganism, not just for food and health, but also for clothing, right? For skincare, for hair care, for makeup, for furnishing. So I'm vegan 100% or I can't even say that because I do my best, but nothing's 100% when it comes to things like this. I'm very conscious of doing vegan as much as I can in my entire life. Wow. It just sits with me that here you are, this student with all of these things going on in the times. And I remember being at UMass in the seventies and I played basketball and during the national anthem, all the black students sat together and nobody would stand during the national anthem. There you go. Times that we go through and we experience. Yep. And then you fast forward 30 some odd years later and what resonated with you in that lecture hall has turned into what it's turned into for you and how you are affecting thousands and ultimately millions of women. It's just, it's really wild. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really grateful. And not only, I'm really grateful that Dick Gregory came and just decided to flip that switch. And uh, he had been going around talking to other campuses about veganism. He had the Bahamian diet drink in this vegan empire, but most of us didn't know that. So he could have very easily just talked about what we brought him there to talk about the political, economic, social state of Black America instead of talking about food and how we eat. I'm grateful because I don't know that I would have become vegan otherwise or as soon. I really don't because I was so against it. I was so anti that. The way that I was going, the weight that I was gaining, the way that I was eating, I am sure that I would have had a chronic disease very soon because most Black women have unhealthy weight, we have high blood pressure, high cholesterol. We are the unhealthiest. There are lots of reasons for that. Systemic white supremacy is the root, but this is the result, right? So I was headed towards that for sure. So I'm grateful. And because I think I did it in community with my mother and my sister, and then this big black vegan DC community, I understood the importance of community and that it wasn't just about me. Did Gregory could have been like, I got it. I got my money, my millions. These last 20 years, I'm done. And I could have said that. I'm done. I got it. I'm going to be this way for the rest of my life. But because I look at this as, as activist work, it's not enough. Like, I'm an activist, right? And so this is my activism. It's not, I'm not in it for personal gain in terms of money and all of that. I'm in it to help Black women live healthier, happier, freer lives. You ever get to meet? Dick Gregory, did he see I any did. of the work that you're doing? I did. I met him. I got to meet him a couple of times. I got to give him my book. One of his sons was actually my chiropractor, my mom's chiropractor first, and then mine. And I uh, hadn't told him my story. And one day I just happened to have my first book by any degrees necessary. I don't remember why. Maybe I was bringing it to somebody. And I was like, oh, by the way, I wrote this book. It's in honor of cooking with Mother Nature. I told him my story. He's like, oh, okay, I'm going to chat with you about it. After our session, why don't you wait for me back in my office? So I opened the door and there's Dick Gregory sitting in his office. I have my book. I give it to him and he flips through it. We have a long conversation. We take pictures. It was just, it was, I can't even tell you. It was thrilling. It was so thrilling. And he said, you need to write a children's book, a vegan children's book. And I was like, cool, done. It's going to happen. So that's still on my plate. Yeah. Great story. Yeah. He had to have been very moved by that. So as I mentioned in the intro, there's an expanded conversation happening in the space as it relates to gut health and the connection to brain health. And maybe it's just me, Tracy, but I don't recall hearing much about gut health until the last few years. And more recently than that, even the gut brain connection. Do you agree the drumbeat is getting louder? And if so, from your point of view, what are the factors that are causing the acceleration of these conversations? I know the concern about the planet and all of that, but what's why the medical community now all of a sudden seems to be embracing this idea? What's going on? 
I think the medical community is following the people. I think that's generally what happens in other areas and they're following suit. So people have always been, first of all, yes, this conversation about gut and brain health, all of that has happened before, has been ongoing. You will see research, you will see book interviews. People have been talking about this for a long time. So I think that there is a louder drumbeat now because of the internet. As I said, you can get it at your fingertips, all this information and access to experts. So I think it's people have been doing lifestyle medicine. Like they have been taking their health into their own hands for generations, for decades. Their doctors may say one thing. Sometimes people don't want to take the medication or they want to explore on their own. And I think that because of the internet, there's much more information. So people have access to these resources as never before. And they have access to experts who have already sifted through some of this information for them, experts that they trust. They can get information that their healthcare professionals may not have. I think that the profession is following people. I really think that's what this lifestyle medicine is all about. That's what I've seen in these last 30 years. It's the vegan community that is leading this change, this sea change that we're seeing among everyone else. And that's what we want, right? That's the goal for everyone, as many people as possible to be able to do it. So that's typically what it is. The medical industry is not going to lead the charge. They're going to continue with the status quo because unfortunately it's primarily profit and getting clients. Even when I was in graduate school and I was challenging the way that they taught plant-based nutrition and veganism, they taught it from lack and deficiency, and I knew otherwise because I had already been vegan 20 years. I challenged my teachers, and they complained to my advisor, and my advisor was like, look, do you want to be right or do you want to graduate? And I'm like, both. But it's changed now. Now NYU teaches that, but they didn't 20 years ago. I see this change happening. And as you mentioned, we've talked about, you've written several books on the subject by any greens necessary, African-American vegan starter guide and ageless vegan co-written with your mom. You offer recipes and strategies for making the transition to plant-based. First and foremost, how is your mom? And I know you mentioned that there were no sodas in your house growing up, but <laughs> did you make the case to your mom about plant-based and how did she come to embrace the lifestyle and what would you say has been the impact on her physically and mentally? My mom, she started in her 50s. So when I'm 86, she was, she's 30 years older than me. So I will be 56 this year and she'll be 86. So yeah, she started when she was 50, 50, 51. And she was, my mom was, like I said, she was health conscious. She was an exerciser. So just reading these books, these same books was enough for her. She immediately started giving up things and it was fish that was the last thing because she loved fish. She's one of 14. Some of her brothers died before they turned 50 of heart attacks, a cousin as well. And she was reading about the connection between red meat and heart disease. And so she let go of that. So these things were happening at the same time. My mother really planted the earliest seed, as I said. So she's been consistent all of these years and she's still vegan. She's still hundred percent vegan. She's still, even during the pandemic, she exercised at her senior center before the pandemic, sometimes three classes a day, walking to and from the center. When they went online, she just started doing the classes online. She's still active, fit. The pandemic took a toll because her social life changed. She was very active. She was never home. So that kind of took a toll on her spiritually and mentally. And now we're opening up a little bit more, but she still has to be really cautious. And that's hard. It's challenging for all of us, but particularly someone in their 80s who's very social, it's challenging. And she was really like, I'm not getting COVID. So y'all grow grocery shopping for me and drop these groceries on my doorstep but there will be no hugging. And we're a hugging family. It was hard. It was tough. We're just fortunately able to, to come out of that, but we still mask and do testing and all of that stuff because as a senior citizen, she wants to be really cautious. Yeah. Wish your mom all the best. Um, we live in a world where we often seek instant gratification. We want the news and small dose headlines. We stroll through Instagram for whatever instant gratification that gives us. So for the skeptic who wants to see gains from making the diet adjustment, what would you say are some of the tangible signs that a plant-based diet is having a positive effect? I've heard you say 
greens make you glow. And obviously we all want to look good. So not to superficialize this, of course, we we're all thinking about how we look, but what would you say, Tracy, are some of the tangible signs that uh, plant-based is making a difference for the person who adopts that? It doesn't take long. We have evidence just in our 21 day program. That first week is all mental and kitchen preparation. The second and third week, those 14 days, we go vegan hundred percent. And so in that 14 days, women have lost weight. They've lowered their blood pressure. They've lowered their cholesterol. Some women have been able to get off of their medication or reduce their medication that they generally feel better overall. Aches and pains go away. This is them telling us we have this expectation and they are confirming that this is happening in just 14 days. Their palates change. We don't do any fried food. We are whole food plant-based. There's no sugar. There's no white sugar, table sugar. We use dates or coconut sugar or maple syrup. Occasionally, we're using whole grains. We're using beans, nuts, fruits, and vegetables, and we're cooking from scratch. And so there's a ton of fiber in the food, right? So women are getting full faster and staying full longer. And we use lots of dried herb seasonings. So it's they're getting signals from their bodies that they're full and they're nourished, right? When you're eating processed food, refined grains, white flour, white pasta, white rice, you're not, there's no fiber, nutrients removed. So you're not getting the brain signals that you're full and nourished, but you get that. And so that's why women, you don't have to worry about portion size as much. You don't have to focus on calorie counting. In this contained program that we have, right? Because we've done all that work for them. So they get fast results. It, it doesn't take a long time. So women who never thought that they could let go of sugar or salt, they do. Because we are showing them how to season it other ways. Women's skin clear up. They experience like a lifting of brain fog, right? And a lot of times you don't know that you're operating in that kind of fog until it goes away. So these are not amazing or astonishing or miraculous. These are expected results because you're eating the healthiest food we know to eat. You're doing it over in our program over a 14-day period and it's healthy. So your, your colon is being flushed. You are detoxifying while you're eating. You're drinking water. You're eating and drinking greens every day, at least twice a day. You can see results really quickly. In, in our program and in other programs, all you have to do is just try it consistently, even if you just do it for seven days. Our whole 21-day program is absolutely free, but we also have a weekend vegan guide, and we encourage people to do it for three days and see the results. So it really doesn't take long. Wow. Just thinking as you were talking, I lost one of my dear friends back in December, childhood friend about the same age as me who died suddenly of a heart attack. I went to his apartment to clear his belongings out and he had some history of heart trouble in his family, but next to his bathroom sink, his morning read was a book called How Not to Die. Oh yeah. And do you know it? Absolutely. Michael Greger is a good friend of mine it's, and it's one of the best. I was thinking as you were speaking, because you alluded to the medical community following the folks like yourself and the leaders in terms of driving what needs to happen with healthcare forward. He was signed up to Kaiser and going on doctor's visits, but he had no idea really what to do. And I just feel like the right diet plan, the stuff that you're talking about, his high blood pressure, the issues that he was facing, it was, he was randomly trying to find his way. But I just feel like that's the urgency I feel, Tracy, with what you're doing. We don't want to lose anyone that we could save. I'm just reminded of that as I hear you talk about the kinds of things that the way in which it affects the women who go on your program. Yeah, I'm very sorry to hear that. Very sorry. It's really sad and tragic. I know people as well and my family, friends, we all do. There's one thing to have the information. But yes, how do you put it into practice? That's why programs are so important and support and encouragement. It's crucial. The word has to be spread. There's so many, there's so many good free programs out there like ours. We just have to spread the word and share the knowledge. And I focus on Black women in particular, but there are 
groups that focus on Black men. There are groups that focus on African-Americans in general and everybody out there. We just have to share the word and uh, do as much as we can. But having said that, I will say this, veganism is not 100% and that needs to be said, right? The healthiest way we know to eat and it can help address up to 90% of chronic disease issues, right? The basic ones, heart disease, certain cancers like prostate, breast, ovarian, BDs, unhealthy weight, right? It, those as a whole, it can help to prevent main or reverse, right? By 90%. However, it is not 100%. And people who are whole food, plant-based vegan can still get diseases, genetic diseases, hereditary diseases. I have a friend who that happened to. He had been vegan for 20 plus years and got a, gen a rare genetic um, disease and passed away in, in January of 2020, my closest friend. Veganism is not 100%, but it is the best that we know to eat. I want to say that because I don't want people to think it's a miracle, but it is 90% and that's more than any medication that exists. And it's the best that we know to do. And it can help prevent these diseases up to 90%. So why not try it? Sure. Yeah. The good point to make. Thank you for that. So a couple more things before I let you go. Where are you on probiotics, kombucha? Are you a fan of kombucha or the drink kefir or kefir? I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I like kombucha, but there's some research that actually Dr. Michael Greger has done about the actual studies on kombucha that I believe show that it's probably not a good idea to do. To be honest, I still want to drink it. So I'm like, I'm going to let that be fuzzy. I need to go back. He did it a while ago. So I don't know before he wrote How Not to Die. Um, I don't know if he's done anything lately. So I need, this is probably a push for me to go back and look at it. But the last study that I saw a couple of years ago show that it's probably not as healthy as we think, and it shouldn't be a regular drink that we consume. I'm doubtful that has changed. For folks who want to investigate that, go to nutritionfacts.org, nutritionfacts.org. That's Dr. Michael Greger's website. That's the information that went into How Not to Die. It's 100% free, nonprofit, and just plug in kombucha and you can find the latest results. Great info. Thank you. I heard you speak about dandelion greens that you didn't mention just now, but I think I read that somewhere that you also may integrate them with your lemon and your water in the morning. So what are the benefits of dandelion greens? So dandelion greens in general, they're dark leafy greens. They're loaded with cancer-fighting antioxidants, fire, calcium, and smaller quantities. But you're really drinking it because dandelion greens in particular are known to help detoxify the liver. So they are detoxing greens. For me, they're probably like the effect they have on me is probably for people who drink coffee or decaf. I've never drank coffee, but I like to drink that in the morning because it makes me feel calm and serene. It cleanses me out, but it also just makes me feel really easy and relaxed and calm. I drink all kinds of dark leafy greens and blended drinks and I eat them, but I noticed, honestly, this seems crazy, but sometimes for just a few minutes, I feel like my vision is clearer and then it goes back to normal. And I have very low vision, so I wear contact lenses or glasses, but sometimes I feel like my vision just gets crisp just for a little, just for a minute, and then just settles back into its normal vision. I haven't investigated that. I'm not saying that science or true, but I have noticed that. But I'm not going to hang a shingle over that. But I do <laughs> know that it has all of these other health benefits that I talked about. So that's, it yeah. personally for me, they're my favorite. That was a new one on me. I used to drink a shot of wheatgrass juice. I had such a hard time getting it down. Is dandelion <laughs> the same kind of, does it make you just bitter. feel like it's that? Bitter. Yeah? Okay. yeah, it's bitter. Lemon, adding a little lemon does help. All right. But for momentary, clearer vision, I might be willing to <laughs> sacrifice that taste. You let me so, know. You let me know. <laughs> I, I will. So, Tracy, I recently listened to a podcast with Ethan ba Brown, who is the founder of Beyond Meats and addressing the health benefits as their objective with the product. And he mentioned a study that Stanford is doing that's not funded by Beyond, but just really trying to examine how healthy Impossible and Beyond are compared to traditional meat, animal protein. Where do you come down on the fake meat? So I call those bridge foods or transition foods, right? So I ate them when I first went vegan. 
the vegan chicken, the vegan pepperoni, vegan cheese, vegan salami, vegan beef, vegan steak, all of those things have the taste and texture of meat. And I use those to help me get over, cross over the bridge into whole food veganism. And so that's what I consider them, transition foods, vegan foods, because a lot of people need that, want that, right, to help them go from omnivore to 100% or more vegan. Those taste and textures that they're familiar with. And some people don't. Some people don't need them at all. But for those folks who want to eat them, I say use them to cross over, but they're not a place to stay. That's what I say because they're processed. Yeah. So that's generally what I say. Okay. And also I recently read about a a blood testing plan that nutritionists are implementing to check your blood and then prescribe a particular diet that is the best for your gut and health and what have you. Do you know anything about that or is that a subject that you're looking at? From what I have read and researched from various sources, Nutrition Facts is one, nutritionfacts.org, that website, you can research it there. But also Dr. Michael Clapper, who's been doing this, he's a surgeon, he's been promoting veganism a very long time, much longer than me, had a white paper that came out probably 20 years ago now, or right when this blood type diet first gained prominence to debunk it. And so it's been quite a while since I've actually read about it just because that was final to me. Regardless of what your blood type is, plant-based foods are the healthiest foods to eat. And that's just facts. And so what I do say is rather than focusing on blood type, have plant-based foods, whole plant-based foods as your base. And then you can find out if there's certain plant-based foods that you're sensitive to. So some people may not be able to eat. They may have celiac disease or they may, for other reasons, may not want to have gluten. They may not want to have corn. They may not want to have wheat. They may not want to have soy for a variety of reasons, but there are whole hundreds of other beans in the bean queendom. So there are thousands of vegan ingredients, vegan types of foods you can eat. Have veganism, whole food, plant-based as your base, and then you can find out over time with food sensitivity tests, what foods are best for you within that. Very sound approach. And winding down, what about supplements? You can spend a fortune on vitamins. What's your feeling about about vitamins? The same thing. I don't think that you should assume that if you go from omnivore to vegan, that you automatically need to supplement. I think that's a myth. People do. That's not necessarily true. You may need to supplement as an omnivore. Most people are omnivores, and so that's the majority of people who are taking supplements. So you can be deficient as an omnivore as well. So you need to find out with your healthcare provider what you may or may what you may be lacking through their testing of your blood. Of your, I can't remember what the different tests are called, but your doctor will know. Your healthcare professionals will know. And so you can get tested. That's what you should do. Now, um, B12 and vitamin D, especially for Black folks, you will probably find that you should take B12, but everybody should take B12, omnivore or vegan, because it doesn't come from animals. It comes from bacteria in the air, in the water, from land. And with our super hygienic world, chlorinated water, et cetera, we typically don't want dirt on our food but that's where it would be. And so you may find that you need a B12 supplement. In 35 years, I've been tested periodically. I've never been B12 deficient. It's a myth. However, because I've been vegan for a long time and I'm getting older, I supplement with B12 sometimes because your stores will get lower over time. I just supplement sometimes, particularly in the winter, if the fruits and vegetables are less abundant then I might supplement just to be sure that I'm sufficient, but I've never been deficient in all of these years of testing. Vitamin D, I've never been deficient either, but we know that where I live anyway, there's not sunshine all year round and I'm not getting it from milk or dairy products where it's fortified. So it can be fortified in vegan products and plant-based milk, so I can take a supplement. But find out for you what makes sense. I filled up several notepad pages of information (laughs) that I gathered leading up to it today and today. But one of the most important things that I wanted to ask you about that I could not find out anything further on, I heard you talk about a place called the Vegan Cafe, the Garrison family made vegan ice cream in 1987. 
in D.C. And I'm wondering, I couldn't find them, but is there vegan ice cream anywhere that you love? I love vegan ice cream. I like to make my own, to be honest. Like we have a recipe in the book that's a little more involved, but I just use frozen bananas and berries and chocolate and coconut, shredded coconut nuts, blend it up and make it my own. But yeah, I love vegan ice cream, especially chocolate, soft serve. I'll get that when I go out for sure. The Garrison's, they were doing tofuti. I don't even know if tofuti still exists. They were doing vegan ice cream back then. It was fabulous. And also Aris Laton, who is a raw food guru. You can look him up. Aris taught everybody who is a raw food guru now, has been doing it for the last 20 years. He taught them. He's from originally from Panama. Phenomenal. I took classes from him in the 80s. He had a restaurant in D.C., where he had like Baskin Robin tubs of vegan raw ice cream, any mm. flavor you can imagine, fruit flavor, and you can make vegan ice cream healthy, not healthy at all. There's a spectrum. You can do it. You can have it all. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the sampler. Tracy, I want to thank you for the important work that you're doing. I really admire what you're up to. So grateful that you took the time. You're very generous with your time with us today and sharing your wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you, Brad. Thank you so much. It was an honor and you had such wonderful questions. It was a great conversation. So thanks for having me. Uh, 